Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I encourage you to turn now to the book of Romans. We're in chapter 7 this morning. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 is our text. If you didn't bring your Bible, we have few Bibles available to you, and we'd be happy for you to borrow one of those. I hope that it's clear by now that I've enjoyed preparing and preaching these messages in Romans. This study so far has encouraged my own heart and aided in my personal sanctification and daily walk with the Lord. And I pray that it's had the same effect on uh, your lives as well. Now, when I say I've enjoyed preparing these sermons in Romans, that is not to say that they've always been easy. We've covered so far some of the most difficult passages, I believe, in all the Bible. And we're not out of the white water yet. In fact, as we begin chapter 7, we come to a topic that has proven over the centuries to be particularly thorny, and one that I have wrestled with personally for over 30 years as I've studied the Bible and theology, and I'm not completely sure I have it in a headlock yet, but I ask for your prayers as I uh, try to lead us through this wonderful chapter. The subject in question is a Christian's relationship to the law. And Lord willing, for the next three Sundays in Romans, we will tackle that issue. What is the relationship of a believer and the law? Let's begin by reading the first six verses of Romans 7. Paul writes, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. If her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law we're at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this, his word. Now, the title of the message today gives away Paul's thesis, his central argument concerning a Christian's relationship to the law. The title of the message is Free from the Law. We have a hymn in the Baptist hymnal in front of you entitled, Free From the Law. We sang it a lot when I was a younger person. Free from the law, O happy condition. Jesus hath bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, Christ has redeemed us once for all. This is the central thesis of chapter 7, free from the law. But what does it mean to be free from the law? Now, Paul was being accused by his enemies of teaching that freedom from the law meant a license to sin, that Paul was encouraging new believers to sin more that they may receive more grace. But Paul here is refuting that notion, remember that we called antinomianism. And in chapter 6, he used an analogy of Roman slavery to explain what happens when a person is born again. 
That is, he is freed from the dominion or the master which has ruled his life up until that point, and that master is sin. And he's freed now not to sin to his heart's content, but he's free for the first time in his life to obey a new master, Christ. Here in chapter 7, Paul further says that we are not only free from sin, but we are free from the law, not to violate it, but to obey it. Now, to begin, we need to look at that expression, the law. When I was growing up in the South, when someone used that expression, the law, it referred to a law enforcement officer. Uh, someone might say on a Sunday morning in Sunday school, if you keep hunting on Mr. Smith's land without permission, he's liable to call the law on you. That's not what Paul had in mind here. Now look at verse 7. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Now the difficulty of this passage begins right away. What is Paul referring to here? Law in general, because the Greeks had law as well as the Jews, or specifically the Old Testament law. Well, there in the original Greek text is no article the. It simply says, for I'm speaking to those who know law. So I believe in context, though, he's speaking directly to his Jewish brethren. He addresses them that way. But it is applicable to anyone who has any knowledge of how law works in general. So let's begin with a little review and reminder about the purpose of the Old Testament law. It is to be our mirror, isn't it? The law, Paul says, has no ability to save, but like a mirror points out our need of being cleaned, the law is a mirror to our soul that shows us that we are sinful and need a savior. And so Paul later says that the law is a tutor or a schoolmaster that directs us in the way that we should go. And of course, that way is to the cross, to Christ. Paul said here in Romans, one of the purposes of the law is to close our mouth that every mouth may be stopped. That is, when the Lord says we are all without excuse, no one can rightly say, but I have an exception, because no one is accept accepted. According to Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, but let's take it to the broader society. Why do cultures, why do civilizations, why do governments have laws? Well, for one, to provide a standard so that people will know that some things are right and some things are wrong. God gives us his law. It tells us what he's like, that he is holy and righteous. But the primary purpose, I think, that cultures have law is to restrain sin. In other words, it is an acknowledgement of man's sinfulness. I can remember some years ago watching a debate between a Christian apologist and a naive young college freshman. And it was an informal debate, and the student was rejecting the Christian apologist premised that all people had a sin nature and that man was sinful. He said, no, people are basically good. It's just their environment that caused them to make bad choices sometime. And the Christian apologist listened with great patience. And when the young man had given his speech, he asked one question. He says, young man, may I ask you a question? Do you lock your doors at night? He said, yes, I do. He says, and you don't believe that man is basically good. The reason we have laws is that we know man is not good. He's a sinner. And we have to have laws and punishments attached to those laws as a preventative for people being as bad as they possibly could be. And then thirdly, law reminds us of what pleases and displeases God. And that's why we don't throw out the Ten Commandments. In fact, most of you probably have a copy of the Ten Commandments hanging prominently in your home because we know God's standards 
have not changed and will not change. So Paul begins his argument with a statement of truth in verse 7 in the form of a rhetorical question. Remember we said a couple weeks ago that Paul was obviously highly educated. One of the things he was educated in was rhetoric, how to make an argument. And he used questions to make his argument. Look at verse 7. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, that's a very enduring term, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over person as long as he lives. So that's a very simple statement of truth, that as long as a person lives, that is their heart is beating, they're breathing in air, whatever culture's laws they happen to live in, they're under that jurisdiction. But when they cease to live, the law has no claim over them. That's why when criminals sometimes are caught and it's obvious they're going to have to be punished, they will take their own lives. Adolf Hitler, probably most famously, was guilty of terrible war crimes, and he knew that he would have to stand trial for that and likely give his life. And so rather than facing human justice, he took his own life. And in one sense, he evaded justice, man's justice, but he certainly did not evade God's justice, of course. And now Paul used a different illustration, not of a slave, not of a criminal, but something that for most of us is the greatest relationship in our lives. He uses, a, uh, he uses an analogy of, of human marriage. Now, there are laws related to marriage in our culture. There are laws related to marriage in almost every culture. In fact, Peter says that marriage is God's grace gift to all civilizations, not just to Christians, not just to Jews. Anywhere you go in the world, that civilization likely is going to have some form of marriage covenant. So look what he says, verse 2. He says, for the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then if her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Now, theologians have argued and grappled and debated uh, over this simple analogy, because they, they want to view it as an allegory. An allegory is a story in which every character represents some entity. Uh, that's not what he's doing here. So don't try to assign to the husband, the wife, to the law. It's just a simple analogy where he's comparing our being dead in Christ, being dead to the law, and a wife uh, being dead to her marriage covenant when one or the other dies. Now we know this. When uh, someone gets married, they make certain promises to one another, and often those covenant promises end with this phrase, till death us do part. So when the death of either the husband or the wife, the other is free to remarry. They're no longer bound by the law. And the analogy is now that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ, we no longer are under submission to sin. We don't have to obey it out of a sense of obligation. We are free to obey it, Paul says, from the heart. Now, secondly, we see the dominion of the law. In Paul's day, a woman was subject to her husband's authority, so long as they both lived. Now, up until a few years ago, that was reflected in our own marriage vows here in the Western world. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember when the vow said, do you promise to love, honest, cherish, and obey your husband, and forsaking all others as long as you both shall live? Now, that last word, obey, has been stricken uh, due to the feminist movement, but uh, for a long time, that's what we said here in the Western world. 
So a woman in Paul's day certainly came under the husband's authority, his dominion, until death separated them. Either she passed or he passed. Clearly, if one spouse died, the surviving spouse is free to remarry. Now, if she jumped the gun and found someone she liked better and went away and married him, then she committed a crime. That's true in our culture as well. She would be put into the category of an adulteress. Paul's point is that now that we are dead to sin through our union with Christ, we are free to come under the authority of another, and that is the Lord Jesus. That is, we are free now to be married to Christ. Of course, the New Testament is full of that sort of marriage imagery as it relates to our relationship with Christ. In fact, Christ is referred to as the bridegroom, and we are the church referred to as the bride of Christ. In fact, the book of Revelation has a beautiful picture of what we call the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I think that's exactly what Jesus was referring to in Matthew chapter 26 that we just read a moment ago. He said, I will not take of it, this supper, until I take it new with you in my Father's kingdom. One day, the scripture says, people are going to come who are believers from east, west, north, and south, from every tribe and tongue and people group, and we are going to celebrate this wedding feast. Now, again, here in the Western world, our wedding traditions have changed. Uh, if you go to some parts of Europe and you're a part of a wedding, it's going to last a long time, right? There's a long ceremony and then even longer wedding celebration. Sometimes went on for days and days. And today we say a few words, and uh, uh, in, in our case, we have some uh, punch and breath mints, and out the door we go. But in that day, it was a huge celebration. I take that that's what it's going to be in heaven at the marriage supper of the land. So the point Paul's making is this. We were obligated and under the dominion and authority of sin before we were born again. But now that we're born again, we're dead to sin and we're free to be joined to a new spouse, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we voluntarily then come under his authority. Listen again what he says in verse 4. Therefore, my brethren... You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you may be joined to another, that's marriage language, to him who was raised from the dead in order that you might bear fruit for God. Well, let's talk about that fruit. You know that one of the purposes that God designed marriage for was to reproduce the population. And that's what he means when he says to bear fruit. What was the fruit of that first marriage, our relationship to the law? Well, it was in the flesh, wasn't it? It was in our old Adamic nature. The law which was given by God was good. Now, Paul's going to talk about that more later. Don't get the idea that I'm saying that the law that God gave, the, the old covenant, was bad or sinful in some ways. But it was never the purpose of the old covenant to save anyone. All of the Old Testament sacrifices looked forward in time to that coming Savior, who would be the once for all sacrifice, as the book of Hebrews says, it never has to be repeated. So the law was given by God and therefore good, but one of the effects of the law, because we are so sinful, is that our appetite for sin, believe it or not, was aroused by the law. You, you all can relate to this if you just go back in your mind to your childhood. Mom comes home from the grocery store and she says, now I'm going out for an hour. Don't you dare eat those cookies that are in the pantry. And you think to yourself, I didn't know we had cookies in the pantry until mom just told me that. But now I must have one. 
Well, that is the effect of the law. God says, thou shalt not steal. And what's it make you want to do in your sinful flesh? Makes you want to steal. Thou shalt not lie. You, you want to tell a lie. That is, we always want to do that which is forbidden. In fact, the first sin that Adam committed, we often call the forbidden fruit, right? God says, you have this wonderful playground in which to live and have dominion on. And the only rule is you can't eat of this one particular tree that's in the midst of the garden. And Eve made a beeline for that tree, right? And we've been doing it ever since. We want that which is forbidden. That's what Paul means when he says the law aroused his sinful passion. So what is the end result of that? What is the fruit of our submission to the law? Well, it is sin. And sin, of course, leads to death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23 says. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So uh, we, we've seen now the law and how once we were subjected to it. And remember, it's just the two ways of saying the same thing. Last time in chapter 6, he said we were under the dominion or the kingdom. We were the slave to sin. And we've been transferred to the kingdom of God's dear son and we're free to obey. Now he's making another analogy of marriage. We were married to sin and our sin nature. But now that we're dead to it through union with Christ, we are free now to marry another Christ and to serve him and to bear fruit for him. So the fruit that the law's dominion produced before we were saved is sin and the result of sin is death. Now let's contrast the law with grace. That's what Paul does throughout the book of Romans. He's contrasting law with grace. Remember, we said we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. Paul's enemies heard him say that, and they said, Aha! You're saying since we're not under the law, the law is unimportant. It's to be set aside, and we should violate it as much as we want without consequence. Paul says, No, that's not at all what I'm saying. And so let's look at what he does say, what he is meaning. First of all, the purposes of grace. You know that our doctrinal statement here at First Baptist Keller is called the Baptist Faith and Message. And the Baptist Faith and Message in Article 5 has an article on the purposes of God's grace, and this is what it says. Election is the gracious purpose of God according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. So when God chooses a person for salvation, here are some of the benefits. Number one, he regenerates them. That means gives them new life. They're born again. He justifies them. He declares them forgiven. Never going to bring those sins up against them again. He sanctifies them. That's what this chapter is about, sanctification. That is, he makes them holy over a lifetime. He separates them from sin. And the end of sanctification, that is the ultimate end of sanctification, is glorification. When we are free not only from the penalty and power of sin, but the very presence of sin. But we're talking about sanctification in the context today. And so our Baptist Faith and Message teaches that one of the reasons that God saves us, one of the primary reasons He saves us is to sanctify us. That is to make us practically righteous and holy. This entire section of Romans is about sanctification. So we can rightly say that God saved us to make us holy. So that is the purpose of grace. The purpose of the law was to show us we aren't holy, to hold a mirror up to us, to, to keep us from being as bad as we possibly could be, 
knowing it had no ability to change our heart. Grace, on the other hand's purpose, is to change us and transform us and make us practically righteous. And so that's the fruit, the purpose of grace. Secondly, we see the dominion of grace. Listen to what he says. Now that we are dead to sin. Paul says that's a, a given. If you're truly saved, that is your new relationship to sin. You are dead to it. We picture that through baptism by going under the water, dead to sin, raised to walk in newness of life. Because we are dead to sin, we're now free to remarry. We are free to also produce fruit through that union with a new bridegroom, that is Christ. Not as a burden or sense of fearful obligation, but out of love. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that to which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not oldness of the letter. You see, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were working real hard to obey the law, right? And what did Jesus say about them? He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's possible to externally give the appearance of law-keeping. But God has always been much more concerned about your motive, your heart, than he is the externals of, of the law. When I say always, you go all the way back to the Old Testament when he says man looks on outward appearances, but God judges what? The heart. And so regeneration is when there is a heart change so that now you are free and have the ability to serve a new master in a new way. Not, he says, according to the letter, that is not out of obligation or fear, but in newness of the spirit. Now you'll notice that word spirit starts with a capital letter. Now what does that tell you? Through the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say to his disciples? That he was going away, but he would not leave them as orphans, that he was sending them a comforter. He was sending the Holy Spirit. In fact, he had told them to go and wait after his ascension in Jerusalem in the upper room until the Holy Spirit came with power. And of course, Acts chapter 2 records when that happened. And that was when the day of Pentecost came. It was the birthday of the church. And since that moment, every true believer at the moment of regeneration is infilled and has permanently the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so we strive to please our new spouse, Christ, not out of fear, not out of contractual obligation, but out of love as the Spirit sheds God's love abroad in our hearts. So the Holy Spirit enables believers to serve and please Christ out of a heart of gratitude and love, not a burden, but a joy. Now, Jesus hated the fact that the Pharisees set harsh burdens upon the people as it related to a lot of things, especially the Sabbath. He says that the Sabbath was made for man, not made for the Sabbath, but the Pharisees kept adding burdens and regulations and all this minutia of law till people began to dread the Sabbath. And Jesus hated that and he rebuked them for it. Jesus doesn't put burdens upon us. He came to set us free to serve in the way that perfectly fits us and brings the most joy and fulfillment to us and the most glory to him. I'm convinced this is what he meant when he says, take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's not saying it's easy to be a Christian. 
That word actually means it is well-fitting. A yoke was uh, often a piece of wood that was formed around the neck of draft animals like oxen and horses. And if it fit poorly, it chafed and rubbed and was uncomfortable. Jesus says, I have designed a life and a ministry for each of you that fits perfectly. And to do so is a joy and not a burden. This is the difference between this dominion of grace and the dominion of law. But what is the ultimate purpose of this new union with Christ? He says it is to bear fruit. Didn't Jesus say a very similar thing in the Gospels? He says, if, if uh, you abide in me and I in you, you will bear fruit and much fruit. This is the reason that we are joined to Christ, so that we may produce fruit. In fact, Jesus told a parable about, we call it the parable of the soils, but it could just as rightly be called the parable of the fruit because the only one that proved itself to be true and truly united to Christ was that which bore fruit. So what is to be the fruit of grace? Remember the fruit of the law was death, was sin that led to death. And so the fruit of our marriage to Christ is life and sanctification. That is an increased love and an increase towards Holiness. Look at uh, what he says in Galatians. But the fruit of the Spirit is, remember this is the Spirit indwelling us and working through us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. And so uh, in conclusion, I would ask you the same question I asked when we were making Preparations to take the Lord's Supper a few minutes ago. Is there fruit in your life? Is there evidence that could be brought to bear in a court of law to prove whether or not you belong to the Lord Jesus? You say, well, pastor, I remember a time when I was a child, vacation Bible school. The pastor asked us to raise our hand if we went to, wanted to go to heaven. And we raised our hands. Uh, you'd look long and hard to find someone who doesn't want to go to heaven, friends. That's not the evidence of conversion. The evidence of conversion is that what fruit is being born in your life. If the fruit that's being born in your life is a consistent attitude of rebellion and a consistent output of sinfulness which leads to death, there is no evidence that you've been born again. But if there is evidence... That is, you have a desire for God's word and you have a desire to fellowship and worship alongside God's people, that you are ministering and serving for the glory of God and that in your own personal heart there is an increase in love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness and fidelity, then you should have assurance. In fact, this whole section is about sanctification which leads to assurance. Chapter 8 is all about why we can and should have assurance of salvation. But it's not based on filling out a card, not based on standing in a circle or raising your hand or writing a date on the front leaf of your Bible. It's about the fruit that is born, giving evidence of the reality of the union that you have with Christ after your conversion experience. So justification, if it's real, begins a process of sanctification, separation from sin, and fruit-bearing 
that leads ultimately to glorification in heaven. What about you? Is that the pattern of your life? If you don't have assurance of salvation today, you can. You can begin a relationship with the Lord Jesus today. How do I do that? Well, it begins with humility. It begins by coming to him on his terms, not to negotiate, but to confess, to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I have nothing to offer in this relationship, but you have said in your word that if I confess my sins, you're faithful and just to forgive my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I take you at your word and I cast myself at your feet and I want to be a slave of Christ, not out of fear, but out of love and gratitude for the rest of my life. Now that I'm born again, now that my sins have been forgiven, I am separated from that relationship with sin that I had before, and I'm free to join myself to another marriage partner, the Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. And as part of his church, I am his bride. And as his bride, I want to bear much fruit in this relationship fruit of righteousness and holiness and attitudes of joy, peace, and patience. If that is the prayer of your heart, the Lord will hear that prayer and he will save you and he will ultimately give you assurance of salvation. One of the things that you need to grow in sanctification, though, is a local church family that we can hold one another accountable to these promises and covenants that we've made and that we can encourage one another on in the faith. The Bible says to encourage one another on the works of righteousness. We need one another, don't we? And so that's why we ask you to publicly come forward at the end of the service if you're ready to join the church or to profess faith in Christ through believers' baptism so that we can recognize that we now have an obligation and the joy of another member of this family. And so in a moment, Matt's going to come and we're going to stand and sing. And if you're ready to publicly profess faith in Christ and start on that journey of discipleship, you just slip out from where you're sitting and come forward and say, I'm ready to follow Christ in obedience. That begins with baptism, as you saw to begin the service today. That continues in sanctification all the days of your life, and it ends in glory. Let's pray and thank the Lord for that marvelous truth. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our new relationship with the law now that we are born again. We no longer serve out of a sense of grudge or fear that you're going to drop an anvil on us if we fail. We do it because you give us a desire to obey you. You give us a love for obedience and your law. And Father, we pray that all of us would grow in that gratitude and that love all the days of our life. Help us each one, Lord, to continue every day to separate from sin and make progress in sanctification. Lord, one of the means of grace that you use to do that is affiliation with the local church body and the accountability that's found there. So Father, I pray for someone here today who needs that kind of relationship and accountability that you would give them the boldness today to present themselves as candidate for membership if that's what you want them to do. And Father, perhaps there's a lost person here today who's never publicly professed faith in Jesus. And Father, they're ready to, to start a, a new life today. I pray that you would grant them faith and repentance and the boldness to join your body here today. Whatever way you'd have us move today and change, show us and point it out. Help us to be submissive to you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. 
thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.